0: 日本史学習に最高のリモンコイロサイト、サムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ。美しい自然に溢れてる縄文時代から華ラン万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょう。では早速日本史の世界へ。Yes!
1: Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm here with Travis. And Today we'll be talking about the politics of the Edo period, which will basically cover the political organization of the Edo period government, the various factions that were involved, some things on international relations, the boundaries of geography, and various other things that we'll touch on in this uh, two-parter. Uh, so this is part one, and part two will be coming at you in about two weeks. So with that, let's get started.
0: Starting into the Edo period, I mean... I think, I I always tend to think of the Edo period as kind of one big block, like how were things in the Edo period, um, in, in kind of in general, which admittedly as a historian, you know, we should always acknowledge that things were very different between 1650, 1700, 1750. You know, the Edo period is not static by any means. But in any case, but to whatever extent that we want to talk about the Edo period being sort of a single thing, sort of getting set up and then staying in that way, I think that most of those things that get established start somewhere around 1630 1640. So let's let's start out before that very beginning of the Edo period. Ieyasu won the battle of Sekigahara and uh you know in in theory sort of nominally claimed dominion over all of well maybe not nominally the opposite uh de facto I guess. That would be right. Claiming uh dominion over all of Japan but at that point in 1600 he wasn't official he wasn't there was nothing in place, sort of his government or anything like that. 1603, uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu gets named shogun. Um, he gets the emperor to name him shogun, and then 1614, 1615, he wages uh, war, I guess, against uh, Tog- the Toyotomi clan, taking Osaka Castle and uh, you know defeating sort of the main opposition to his, uh, the main threat to his, d- to his dominion. Um, and then in, at, towards the end of the 1630s, we have the Shimabara Rebellion, which I'm actually not that specific about, but I think that basically it sort of represents the very last gasp of any potential disunity coming from the Christian daimyo and the Christian followers uh, in Kyushu. Well, at the same time,
1: it 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 my impression has always been that it's sort of uh, it was sort of an uprising that wasn't necessarily a Christian uprising, but it kind of took that uh, it kind of Gained that notoriety for some reason, or or maybe that was used as propaganda by the Tokugawa to kind of push Christianity out. I guess I don't know. I don't know the great detail on that, but that's uh, sort of the impression I've gotten.
0: Yeah, Shimabara is really not something I know that much about, to be entirely honest. But I but I feel like those two events, the siege, the siege of Osaka or the War of Osaka, whatever we want to call it, and the Shimabara Rebellion are probably the main battles, the main military events of the Edo period of, of the early Edo period that I think. You know, those sort of samurai enthusiasts, military history enthusiasts would want to make sure are mentioned. Right. In any case, by 1640 or so, most of the the sort of really main kind of structural things about the way the Tokugawa shogunate runs have been put into place. One of them is over the course of the 1630s, um, there was a number of, of edicts that basically banned most foreigners, not all foreigners, but Banned most foreigners from being in Japan, Uh, in particular, it outlawed Christianity and kicked out the Spanish and Portuguese missionaries, restricted the Chinese to Nagasaki, uh, Chinese trading merchant activity to Nagasaki, restricted the Dutch East India Company to Dejima, a tiny little island in Nagasaki Harbor, and forbade uh, Japanese from leaving the country, or to be more sort of accurate, I guess, from coming back to the country.
1: If they left it.
0: Right. Which... Uh, so that's sort of one whole thing. A lot of people call that Sakoku, the the chained up country or the closed country. I much prefer to call it kaikin, uh maritime restrictions, using the characters for ocean and to forbid. But we don't have to get into any huge detail about that right now. Well, actually, um, that
1: was a uh, you, you did talk about that in our podcast with you back. Uh, if people check, yeah, people check the uh, samurai dot com. It would be the episode prior to episode one, actually, uh, where you yeah, yeah. talk about your.
0: Seals of Red and Wetters of Gold, uh, Master's Thesis, yeah. Exactly. So um, anyway, so that's one whole sort of set of things. And then Sankin Kotai is another major one that happens by that period. So, so basically at this point, the land of Japan, the, ar- the archipelago, is divided up between a number of different powers, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess. Um, the shogunate controls 15% of the land more or less directly. Um, and that's worth roughly 4 million Koku. I guess we have to get into Koku at some point. Well, anyway, in a couple minutes. Uh, the Shogunate controls about 15% of the land, and the Daimyo control about 75% of the land. And we could go into some, I mean, we we have actually done a several podcasts about the extent to which these Daimyo lands, these Han, these domains, were independent states, semi-independent. But anyway, so for the most part, I mean, there, there are Shogunate lands and there are temple lands and their shrine lands, but roughly 75% of the country is controlled by the daimyo, who each have, um, you know, a certain geographical domain, certain territory within which they exercise a considerable degree of independence. And one of the main ways that the shogunate sort of uh, assured the loyalty of the, of the daimyo and, and kept them in, in control was by having this, this system called kōtai, or alternate attendance, Um, in which, I actually forget whether it's once every two years, once every three years, something like that. The daimyo had to travel up to Edo with a huge entourage, and it it was a very expensive uh, uh, undertaking to travel to Edo, and they had to travel up to Edo, spend a certain amount of time there, and then travel back to their domains, um, you know, once every few years. Uh, And this was really sort of the main, this put a, a great financial strain on the daimyo and prevented them from sort of hoarding power, and you know organizing rebellions or whatever the shogunate also limited each domain to only one castle per domain a couple of at, at, well at least one domain got out of that uh, satsuma managed to have tons of castles but anyway so these are all you know a number of different kinds of systems that were put into place and sankin kotai the maritime restrictions all these different things will remain in place until the 1850s or 1860s sort of setting the stage for or the the fundamental situation for what Tokugawa Japan, uh, Edo period Japan, is, is like, how it's set up. Right. I guess, well, usually when we talk about the Han or the Daimyo, usually when we introduce this, this topic, we talk about the difference between Tozama Daimyo and Fudai Daimyo. Um, and then there's also shimpan or Gosanke. So you have the shimpan Daimyo, which is a relatively small number of, of Daimyo of lords who are directly related to the Tokugawa clan. And they have some of the most powerful or most sort of, well, I shouldn't say powerful, but some of the most central and important territories, usually sort of uh, near the center of um, geographical, you know, kind of center near Edo or near Kyoto. And I believe the Shimpan, if I'm not mixing things up, includes, for example, Nagoya Castle, uh, as well as the Tokugawa, the the Mito Tokugawa in um, Mito. So uh, people like that. And then you have the Fudai daimyo, who are other clans that, that were uh, closely associated with, with Tokugawa that, that Tokugawa trusted more. Um, and they also had relatively small domains, I'd say small to medium, I guess. But oh, most of the, well, a lot of the Fudai, not all of them, a lot of the Fudai were located, again, relatively close to Kyoto or Edo in that sort of central part of Japan. So the, the Tozama daimyo, are the ones with the largest domains, the wealthiest domains, um, and usually are the ones who are located the furthest from the capital. Um, So the Tozama includes people like the Date clan of Sendai, the Shimazu clan of Satsuma, the Maeda clan of Kaga, who actually uh, controlled one million koku, which is roughly 25% of what the shogunate controlled themselves, which is pretty impressive. All of these, each, each domain was its wealth or its wealth was measured in koku, which is a unit of rice, supposedly equal to the amount of rice that, uh, that it takes to feed a man for a year. But anyway, suffice to say that it's, it's an important number that comes up when you talk about sort of the, the wealth of daimyo, the whatever. So the Tozama were definitely, uh, some of the Tozama daimyo were the wealthiest. Uh, daimyo with the largest uh, domains and like that. So then we have the Fudai daimyo who are the ones who the lords that the Tokugawa trusted the best. Um, they tended to have smaller domains closer in towards the uh, towards the center of the country. And part of the reason for this is because, um, and I'm not positive exactly the reason for exactly how they came about, but one explanation that I've heard that seems to make sense is that a lot of the Tozama daimyo simply were too powerful and too far away for the shogunate to bother actually, you know, sending military forces to force them to submit. If the if shogunate had to send uh, an army all the way down to Satsuma, I'm not 100% positive that they would have won. Right. Um, uh, the Shimazu didn't send any troops, I don't think, to, to Sakigahara. They shored up their own defenses in anticipation that the shogunate might attack them. So, um, anyway, there's that, and, and I guess sort of the idea that... You know, these daimyo were allowed to keep their territory, keep their power, keep their wealth, in exchange for their loyalty. Might have been kind of part of it. So anyway, the fudai were then given these smaller parcels of land, um, not tiny, but just sort of medium, average size, I guess you could say. Usually in, in good, um, strategically important locations, uh, along along the Tokaido, for example, along the main highway, where they could. Uh, you know, number one, they had a lot more access to, to sort of trade and being central in, in, in all of that. But also, you know, uh, they, they were positioned where the shogunate could trust them to help oversee the highways and things like that. Um, so anyway, so we have this sort of uh, binary between the Tozama and the Fudai. And then there's the shimpan, which are, I guess, uh, the shimpan are the daimyo that are actually directly related to the Tokugawa family. Uh, and these are mostly people who, who hold the name Matsudaira. The family name Matsudaira, and again the Shimpan, not nearly as wealthy in terms of number of koku as the as the you know most outlying Dozama daimyo, but the Shimpan again had some of the the more important castles, the better castles like Nagoya, for example. So, but one thing I think was interesting, and I hope this doesn't take us too much on a um, what's the word? Dust Sen, but um, that's what we old...
1: do. That's okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. But there was an article that I posted on the forums a while ago. Um, I don't know if you saw it, Chris, by Mark Ravina, a very short blog entry where he talks about um, artosama art and fudai meaningful categories.
1: I saw it. I think I, I eyeballed it. I don't, I don't think I read the entire thing. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I think basically I, I wanted to bring this up just because if you look at most, I don't know, in, in my experience anyways, most uh, sort of, survey textbook kind of intro history of Japan kind of treatments will really, really focus very heavily on the Tozama and the Fudai and on this big difference between them. And I think pretty much, you know, we, we also, um, I think pretty much when we talk about daimyo in the Edo period, we tend to talk about certain daimyo that are really the outliers. So when you talk about Kaga or Satsuma or Tosa or Choshu or Sendai as being quote unquote typical uh, tozama Daimyo or being good examples of Tozama Daimyo. They're actually serious outliers. Um, and uh, Ravina has we, we can post the link to this article uh, you know on the podcast blog there. Mm-hmm. But uh, he has some so visuals here where you can see that if you if you cut out the top mm, five to ten uh, Tozama Daimyo and just don't count them at all, the, the range of, of wealth in Koku in between the Fudai and the, and the Tozama becomes almost exactly the same. There's literally no more than, I think, 10 or so. Let's see. Kanazawa, Satsuma, Kumamoto, Saga, Choshu, Fukuoka, Kochi, that's to say Tosa, Hiroshima, and about five more um, Tozama Daimyo that control more than 200,000 Koku. So, and among the Fudai, there's Aizu, Himeji, Hikone, and about two more. Um, so if you just don't count those 20 or so, all the rest of the daimyo, whether they're Fudai or Tozama, control about 150,000 or less. Hmm. And so they're, he's basically arguing that, uh, I'm not even sure if he's arguing that, they're, that we should consider them to be the same, but at least he's arguing that to take those as our uh, sort of standard examples is um, sort of skewing our understanding, I think, in a sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: I don't know. I mean, I personally, I think that, you know, I mean, I, uh, the Shimazu and the, and the Maeda and the Date are really interesting people. They have really interesting stories and, you know, I'm glad that there's a lot of scholarship on them. But, uh, if we want to talk about sort of daimyo in general or something, we need to acknowledge that they're not sort of the most typical Sort of the best examples. Anyway, but so yeah, I mean, you have uh, Kaga Han, which has 1 million koku, Satsuma with seven, with over 700,000 koku. But just to, to name a few other, I mean, you have places like Tahara Han in Mikawa province with 12,000 koku, Kitoyoshihan Han in Higo province um, with 22,000 koku. I, there's no real point, I guess, in going through all of these, but suffice to say that. The vast majority of domains out there really did not have nearly as many koku. Um, they were not nearly as big as as these sort of handful that, that we tend to talk about, whether they were tozama or fudai, doesn't really either way. But anyway, so 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 we have the country divided up into you know the shogunate sort of ruling over these these daimyo, these han, and there's sort of different exchanges of. Um, uh, you know, I mean, loyalty and like that. I don't want to get too deeply into this this question again of whether they were states or whether they were independent. But um, but try to think of it, I, I, I like to think of it as like a confederacy or something along those lines. Right. a sort of federation.
1: And for anyone who missed it, uh, it was episode 49 and 50 where we basically talked about the uh, Sengoku Daimyo domain as political state. Was it a confederacy? Was it... Uh, uh, you know, all, all of that sort of the political side of the daimyo during the, uh, well, not necessarily the Edo period, but I guess just sort of in general.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm sure Edo period came up in that uh, as well, because I would have I would have uh, offered that. But, um, but anyway, so we have this sort of situation of the daimyo, the various Han, together controlling about 75% of the archipelago. The shogunate, as I said, controlled about 15%. And... The Hatamoto, who were basically sort of direct retainers of the shogun, had their own—I'm not entirely clear exactly—but I guess each of them, each each of their families, had some really small parcel of land. Uh, they didn't have retain—they didn't have you know any extensive sort of retainers of their own or whatever. They weren't daimyo, but anyway. But the Hatamoto together controlled about 10% of the land, which leaves, uh, by my estimates, even though it doesn't quite fully add up, um, <laughs> roughly 1.8% of the land. 500,000 koku belonged to a combination of the imperial court, temples, shrines, and like that.
1: Now, does this uh, include the sort of the outlying areas like uh, the north, Hokkaido, and uh, probably not the Okinawa area, I would assume?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're not, well, we're not including Ezo, right, the Hokkaido, Um, and actually Matsumae is a sort of interesting domain because... uh, Which is on
1: the uh, southern tip of Ezo or Hokkaido.
0: Right, right. Um, Matsumaya, which was located on the southern tip, was the, the only Han, huh, the only domain which, A, did not have a sort of prescribed uh, borders, specifically, um, and B, did not actually have a Koku rating.
1: Not to get on a tangent, if there's a simple answer, then that mm-hmm. would be great, but uh, how were they taxed?
0: I do not know.
1: Oh, okay. I, I, know the, I know the land taxes were based on the uh, arable land, et cetera, et cetera. but if they didn't really have a set right. Koku, then...
0: Yeah, I'm not sure.
1: They could say, sure. oh, "Well, sorry guys, this year we only had 150 koku up here."
0: Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, and then on on the southern end, um, I don't know, because the Ryukyu Kingdom, which was controlled by Satsuma Domain, the Ryukyu Kingdom did have a koku rating. They did, you know, land surveys or whatever, and they assigned a koku rating. But I'm still a little bit. I think that was included within Satsuma's koku rating. I'm not positive and therefore would have been included in the total, right? But, so I um, guess
1: mainly we're talking about, what, the, the four? Well, I guess maybe three, main. what is it? Kyushu, yeah. Shikoku, and Honshu, and that's about it, yeah. basically.
0: Yeah, that's basically what we're talking about. Um, I mean, the only other places, you know, it was uh, it's basically it. Shikoku, Kyushu, and Honshu. I mean, Tsushima is sort of the largest island that's not one of those three, um, and Tsushima only had 100,000 koku because of their... Incredible importance with the Korea trade. Their actual agricultural production was much, much smaller. So Tsushima is one of the uh, sort of interesting, fun domains that has a different kind of story to it. But which anyway, is
1: uh, located just, just sort of off the coast of uh, Nagasaki. For anyone who doesn't know,
0: right, right, yeah. Today Tsushima is part of Nagasaki Prefecture, and it's sort of right in between uh, Kyushu and um, Korea, I guess. So and then. But uh, the, the, the shogunate lands included within them places like Edo, Osaka, Kyoto, uh, Nagasaki that did not have daimyo, that were ruled directly by an administrator appointed by, um, by the shogunate. Um, so, Edo, Osaka, Kyoto, Nagasaki, Nara, Sumpu, which is now known as Shizuoka City, uh, and Nikko. So, uh, you know, and we can kind of understand why the shogunate would want to maintain control over those places. Um, and not let a daimyo get control over such such incredibly important cities or, or ports anyway. Uh, so we talked about 1615 was the was when they had the limit on one castle per domain. Somewhere right around that time, samurai were restricted to the castle towns. So we actually see a. Um, uh, I mean, during Hideyoshi's time, right? He he took, he had that famous sword hunt, where he sort of made a, a sharper division between. Um, samurai and peasants, right? Right. But now we have sort of an extension of that, I guess, somewhat forcing samurai to live in castle towns, to not be based out in in the countryside, which I'm sure there were all kinds of reasons and all kinds of um, implications of this. One of the main ones that I've heard of is that uh, this was to prevent them from organizing rebellions or building armies in the countryside. You know, it, it forced them to sort of the, under the eyes of the daimyo and the daimyo in, uh, in turn under the eyes of the shogunate and like that marriages between daimyo clans which of course could then represent beginnings of alliances and sort of the building of power bases was also forbidden without shogunate approval um and then in 1635 we have the the obligation of sankin kotai the obligation of going up to edo in 1635 it was, was made mandatory for all daimyo not just tozama and like that prior to that it was um voluntary which I find interesting I'm not sure how many people really did that but but anyway so and the other thing about King Kotai that I forgot to mention was the important element of that uh, the daimyo's um, wives and their heirs I think their heirs as well had to stay in Edo when the daimyo was not in Edo um, and so it was sort of this hostage situation if you You know, if you try to raise rebellion and, and, you know, really try to pose some serious threat to overthrow the shogunate or something like that, or even just to secede or something, um, you know, we've got your wife. Right. So, but, you know, and and so this serves very important political purposes, but as we'll get into later, you know, this also had incredible cultural uh, and economic impact because you have basically every domain had to maintain a mansion in Edo. So you start to have, you know, just tons more activity in Edo. People coming and going from all over the all over the archipelago to and from Edo, um, doing these sunken Kotai missions and bringing all kinds of things with them. Under politics, well, obviously within the shogunate, they you know within the within the Edo administration within the bureaucracy, they had you know all kinds of um, um, bureaucratic hierarchy and stuff. And um, I actually, I don't know. I'm just going to skip over that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, one, one thing that I guess that's important to note is that the tozama daimyo were not eligible to um, to serve in the shogunate administration in the bureaucracy. So, you know, all the people making the making the decisions and you know really kind of running the shogunate were uh, were from the fudai daimyo or the shimpan daimyo. Um, uh, it's a very I'm sure it's a very complex and sort of intricate hierarchy and, and bureaucracy. But um, we can talk about at least the shogun at the top and the um, the roju, the elders, um, who were sort of the chief um, advisors to the to the shogun. So these are kind of these are the people who had the most power um, in making decisions and making policy and like that. Um, in certain periods, we had people called soba yonin, which was also known by different names. That position or the title was known by different different names over the course of the period. But that included some people who um, who also ended up having incredible uh, influence in, in policy. Uh, a lot of them are, are Matsudaira, Honda. Um, we have people like Manabe Akifusa, was one of them. Honda, uh, Honda Tadakazu, Mizuno Tadanari. So you have the shogun, you have the roju, the elders, and you have the Sobayonian, who at different points in time. Um, Sobayonian person made, uh, you know, a lot of Policies and a lot of impact in the government, and those were all people who were chosen out of the fudai daimyo. But um, I think to get really into depth about exactly how that was all structured, probably need a whole podcast unto itself. So most likely, yeah, yeah. So just sort of a brief overview on that, I guess. The only other thing that I have to talk about politics is um, international relations, very briefly. People generally talk about the Edo period being "quote unquote" closed. You know that Japan closed itself up, and and then Perry, Commodore Perry came in the 1850s and opened it up. Um, Japan was not closed; it, it limited, it controlled its foreign relations in certain ways, but um, but it, there was actually quite a lot of exchange and, and interaction. So
1: yeah, which we've we've talked about in quite a few different podcasts. I know there was one about the the guns uh, podcast. I think. Uh... You know the issues with the the Russians during the Edo period, uh, right? You know things like that. Also the, uh, the the podcast that we did with you with the uh, your master's thesis. So yeah, it's uh, I I think it's been pretty well established that uh, the the sort of the myth of Japan as a completely closed country sealed off from the world in a hermetically sealed box or container is just sort of sort of a myth.
0: Cool. Thanks for jumping in there and cutting me off. It's good. Um, yeah, we don't need to talk about it anymore. It's good. Anyway, but suffice to say that foreign relations, and, I mean, mainly in terms of economic trade, was handled mainly through four gates, as it were. Uh, Matsumae in the north, which uh, controlled sort of relations with the Ainu and sort of defending the north from the Russians. Um, Satsuma in the south, Kagoshima, um, controlled the Ryukyu kingdom and via the Ryukyu kingdom had uh, access to uh, China trade and a lot of information from China and stuff like that. Uh, Nagasaki, as I mentioned, was where the Chinese merchants and the Dutch East India Company were based. And Tsushima was in charge of relations with, uh, with Korea. So through those four, only one of which was actually controlled by the shogunate, you know, the other three were controlled by Daimyo, by Tozama Daimyo. Uh, that's sort of basically how uh, foreign relations and, uh, in the Edo period was, was structured. One, sorry, one, one thing we can mention also, just in like one sentence, about the way the uh, shogunate was structured was that they had a number of different bugyo or bugyo show which i guess is usually translated as mag- magistrate oversee oh, right. overseeing different things you know so you had the, the gaikoku bugyo who uh, oversaw r- foreign relations kind of in some kind of general sense the nagasaki bugyo who oversaw everything that went on in nagasaki as well including sort of relations with the dutch and the chinese um, and like that you had a bugio who was in charge of overseeing the highways and you know you had at least one bugio i'm not well never mind i'm not going to get into uh, ritual or whatever i'm sure they had people who were in charge of ritual and i I don't even know exactly what they were called so skip that one
1: okay that's it for part one of our talk on edo period politics be back in about two weeks with part two And in the meantime, if you'd be so kind as to support the Samurai Guys podcast, please feel free to go to our blog at samuraipodcast.com. Check out the links. They're all listed there. We have our link to amazon.com, and if you click on that link and make any purchases, a little kickback will come back to us to pay for the podcast hosting. And uh, the articles that we talked about will also be linked up there, so uh, feel free to go take a look. And in the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to send them along to samuraipodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we'll see you in two weeks.